Mosaic believes that the church is designed to be a genuine community of people, creating a safe space of belonging for all, seeking to serve our neighbors with the compassion of God, providing opportunities to learn to be more like Jesus, and living life well together. This can't happen in a one-hour time slot on Sunday mornings, yet we desire to be a worshiping, missional community in Clayton, North Carolina. Visit MosaicClayton.com or find us on Facebook, Mosaic Church of Clayton. So it's good to be with you in front of you. I'm, I'm here every Sunday just about, um, but it's good to be up here uh, sharing with you this morning. Uh, Andy is out of town uh, with his family, uh, and so he asked me to come and, uh, and to share a message with you uh, from the Gospel of John as we continue our I Am statements, the self-made monikers of Jesus of Nazareth. But as we begin this morning, I want to share a story with you all, a parable, if you will, of a moving boy. So there once was a boy, uh, he was born like we all are, uh, and when he was about two years old, his family moved from one location uh, to another location in the same city. A year later, they moved from the state of his birth to a completely different state, one state over. A year later, right as he started to gain some idea of what it meant to have community and what it was like to be a toddler exploring the world, his family would once again move to the next state over. And they would stay in that particular location for about uh, six years or so. Uh, and he would begin to build friendships and, uh, and begin to build community with people. Uh, but even in that time, his family would move just enough in that city that he would go to three different elementary schools. Uh, and by the time he got to fifth grade, uh, kind of had a little bit of a community, but wasn't sure exactly what that was like. One day he came home from fifth grade and his mother said, this was about December, we're going to move again across the state and you're going to start a new elementary school. And so his family moved across the state and all of the rest of fifth grade and into sixth grade he started to build community again. Uh, but then right before seventh grade his mother again said, we're going to move again and we're going to move far away from here. And so they did. And so the boy began to build community in yet another new place. And he was in that place for a year and a half uh, when right before 10th grade, his family moved again. And he began to once again figure out what it was like to be in community when his family moved again before 11th grade. But something that happened as he sought community in each of these places, as he tried to figure out what is it really like to have friends? What is it really like to, to know people on a deeper level than just their name and who I see at school? Uh, each time he moved, he had a hard time figuring that out. But in eighth grade, something shifted in his story and in his path. At a moment when he was trying to figure out who he was and what it meant for him uh, to be a person in the world and to be a person in community. Uh, but you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon to figure out what that is because I think Jesus has a lot to say about community and it informs what happens with this boy. So our passage this morning comes from John chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible or a mobile device or uh, eyes, if you just want to look up there, um, it'll be up there. But 
We're going to be looking at John chapter 14 and the self-made monikers of Jesus. Jesus throughout the Gospel of John uses the words, I am, which draws from the Old Testament when Moses stands before the burning bush and God has told him, go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go and tell the people I've come to deliver them. And Moses says, well, how are they going to know that I'm legitimate? How are they going to know that you have sent me? And he says, tell them I am has sent you. And so throughout the Gospel of John, to make connections between Jesus and God and his role with God and God among us, Jesus uses these I am statements. And so we're going to read another one this morning in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, disciple, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father that we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works and miracles themselves that you have seen. And so, today as we look at this passage from the Gospel of John, as we kind of take apart the I am statement of Jesus here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We kind of have to get an idea of context. And if you've been here on a Sunday morning before, you know that our pastor Andy loves context. His favorite phrase is context, context, context. And so there was no way that I was going to stand up here and not be able to tell you what's going on. Now context, in light of scripture, is looking at what's going on right before what we're reading. And what's going on right after what we're reading. Well, in our passage, Jesus Jesus and his disciples are sitting at a table, a meal, the last meal that they will share together. What we now use to inform how we do communion when Jesus has the bread and the wine. They're having a conversation and Jesus is talking to them about what is to come and what will happen. He's preparing them for what is going to happen in the next days and weeks ahead. He's just washed the disciples' feet, uh, an ultimate act of what it means to be a servant, the teacher, the rabbi getting down on his hands and knees with a towel and washing the nasty, dirty, grimy feet of the disciples. Uh, Judas has left the building and gone to the temple to begin to prepare to betray Jesus, uh, which will happen very soon. Jesus has given them a new commandment. He says to them, love one another as I have loved you, preparing them to be the church that they will need to be. And just right before John 14, 1, Peter and all of his boldness and all of his uh, Peterness uh, is trying to tell Jesus, I will be there with you till the very end. I will defend you till the very end. And Jesus predicts that Peter actually will deny him three times. 
Beyond the passage, as you may be able to guess, if this is the Last Supper, Jesus promises them that the Holy Spirit will come and will guide them in a time when he will not be with them. They leave singing a song and head to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus talks about being the true vine and them being the branches. Jesus gives the, if the world hates you, remember they hated me first speech. And then Jesus prays in the garden, so stressed about what's to come that he drips blood from his body. And then right after that, of course, Jesus is betrayed and the passion events begin. Now I recognize it may seem strange that we are just removed from Easter and now we're talking about Jesus again at the Last Supper. Um, but I think it's important that we note what Jesus is saying because everything Jesus is saying here in our passage informs what happens after Easter. After the church is trying to figure out what are we supposed to do now that Jesus is not with us. But in our passage this morning, for all intents and purposes, Jesus is saying goodbye to his closest friends, his disciples. And generally, we don't like goodbyes. We'd rather avoid them at any cost. Why wouldn't we? Because sometimes they're uncomfortable. They're, they're not the, the best experiences we have. They're a sign that we're saying goodbye to the people that we love and that we care for. Uh, some famous goodbyes from, from a few movies that I thought of when I was thinking of this. The first is Rose letting go of Jack at the end of Titanic after she selfishly let him freeze to death while she stayed above the waterline when there was plenty of room for them on the door. And I found this great image that shows exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, when Owen Wilson kisses Marley for the final time, remarking that he was a great dog in Marley and me. And I apologize that some of you will have that in your head the rest of the day. But it is a say goodbye. And then for Andy's sake, Luke Skywalker's I've got to save you to Darth Vader as he remarks you already have and dies from whichever Star Wars movie that comes from. Unlike our pastor, I couldn't tell you the difference between the first one and the last one. I've just seen them. Uh, so some goodbyes are very sad, but some goodbyes can be instructional and they can give advice like Commander Spock's live long and prosper from Star Trek for all of you who get tired of hearing Andy talk about Star Wars. Ron Burgundy's stay classy San Diego from Anchorman as he closes each newscast. And for the uh, slightly more seasoned crowd, E.T.'s I'll be right here statement to Elliot before flying off in his spaceship. So some goodbyes can be sad and some goodbyes can be inspirational or give advice or seek connection. Jesus' goodbye to his friends in John chapter 14 is a mix of sadness. He knows what's coming. He knows that he's not going to be with them. It's a mix of advice. He's seeking to help them figure out how are you going to survive without me. And he's seeking to give them some inspiration. Stay strong in the faith. He has an idea of what's to come and he's working to prepare them for it and what their community will look like after everything that is about to happen. The first part of the chapter of John, uh, 14th chapter of John, uh, is one of my favorite verses. Uh, if you had asked me as a teenager when I was in youth group and uh, we were told to come up with a life verse, what is the verse that affirms your life and that you carry with you, this would have been the verse for me. No matter the situation in which I found myself, pulling from the words of Jesus in John 14.1 helped me get through the situations that I encountered. And I think in the same way, Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples to, for, for anything that will come to them when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. It can't be read without taking into account what's going to come. 
But it's important to note that Jesus is not talking about personal sadness here. He's not saying don't let your heart be personally sad. He's not saying don't ever get sad or don't ever get anxious or don't ever find yourself gripped by depression because those things are wrong and those things are sinful. I think when you read the Gospels, Jesus, if anything, notes that those things are not wrong and that they are a part of the human experience. He's not saying to them don't be personally sad because those are a reality of life. But instead, he's giving them a rally cry. He's saying to them, be strong in what you've heard. Trust the work. Trust what I have taught you. Know that what I have taught you will keep you going if you just trust in what I've said. If you just live out what I've said, especially in the events that are to come. In other words, Jesus is trying to remind them that there is more to come for their community. Yes, something will happen to him. It probably will end in death. And yes, he will not be physically present with them. But what he's trying to say to them is, what I've taught you and what you have seen and what you have been preparing for all of this time is to be a community that will last longer than anything that can rock us. Anything that can happen, even if I'm not physically present with you. I have seen the promise of a future kingdom. It's coming if you just stay strong. As I read these words, I couldn't help but see the parallel to other words spoken about 2,000 or so years later by a 39-year-old Baptist preacher. Fifty years ago this past Tuesday, on April 3, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood in front of a crowd at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. In his speech that night, he called for unity and justice while sanitation workers were on strike because of the low pay and dangerous working conditions that were happening there in Memphis and around the nation. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks before, two sanitation workers had been crushed to death doing their job. And so Dr. King comes to, to rally them and to call for unity and for, uh, for safety and for equality. And in his speech, he makes remarks on injustice and the state of the nation and gave a ringing call for the God-given freedoms that we we all should enjoy to be given to every person. Yet it's in the final moments of his speech, this speech uh, at this uh, Mesa Temple uh, to give uh, equality to sanitation workers that we remember most. It's even what we entitled the whole thing. It's, it's the moment his speech becomes sermon when he says this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will and He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The reason this is significant is that less than 24 hours later, 39-year-old Dr. Martin Luther King would be dead, the victim of an assassin's bullet while standing on his balcony at the Lorraine Motel. His words, much like those of Jesus in John chapter 14, seen from this side of history, from 2018, seem prophetic and haunting. Like Jesus, Dr. King sought to prepare his listeners and those who would hear him and his closest friends for what is to come. 
Both Jesus and Dr. King had a vision for a future that they were not sure that they would be present for, but that they were hopeful that the community would continue on in their absence. Dr. King's words call for a community that comes together around the understanding that we will one day reach a promised land that we have not yet attained. A place where, as the prophet Amos once proclaimed, justice rolls down like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Jesus, too, had a vision of such a world, maybe even being driven by the same prophetic words from Amos, because Jesus and Dr. King both had access to those words. But what does this really mean for Jesus' disciples? Sitting there at that table, probably not all on the same side like Da Vinci said, but around a table having conversation together, seeking uh, to just be a community, to laugh and to share stories. We, we really focus on the part where Jesus does the communion as we understand it today. The, the wine or the juice and the, and the bread, the body and the blood of Christ. But I like to think that they came in laughing and singing. They sat down and they shared stories together. They told jokes. They jabbed each other in the ribs a little bit. And Jesus laughed there amongst them, but all the while feeling the strain and the stress of what is to come. Jesus looking into the eyes of each and every person there, remembering their names, remembering the point that he came into their lives, remembering the things that they had done, the things that they had said, remembering the memories that they had had together, and feeling sadness because he knew that he would not be with them much longer but feeling hope because of the community that they would come. How are they going to stay strong to stay alive, much less to build a community in the days ahead, in the days that their rabbi and their teacher and their leader has been removed from them? Jesus' next words give the answer to that, I think. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These words, an answer to Thomas's question about how they are to follow Jesus. If you're going away, Jesus, why can't we just go with you? And, and how are we going to get there? And Jesus says, you already know the way. And, and they're a little knuckleheaded and say, well, we don't know the way. Tell us the way. Tell us how to get there. And I think to understand this, we really have to take this I am statement apart. The first part being, Jesus said, I am the way. Now when read in light of Jesus' fuller teachings in the Gospels, it becomes apparent that Jesus is not referring to a GPS-style way of being the way. He's not saying, tell Siri to plug me in and navigate to where I am going. He's not saying, put me in Google Maps and you'll figure out where you're supposed to go. No, Jesus is referring to a different understanding of the word way. And seeking to build a community that will last and that will keep them strong in the face of all that is to come, Jesus refers to the word way as if a way of life or the way of the wise. This understanding of way draws from the ancient Jewish understanding of what it meant to be the way. And as a matter of fact, as the church sought to be the church of Christ in the world, they would become called the way. The way of Christ, a way of living, a way of understanding how they exist in the world and how they exist as community. Jesus is calling his disciples to remember what he has taught them and to continue to live it out in the world, to see their lives in light of him and in light of what he has said. Now how do they follow Jesus as the way? If it's not about a certain path that's labeled Jesus, if it's about living the life that he had taught them to live, how do they follow him? 
Well, that's found in the next part of our statement in the truth and the life. They reveal how Jesus is the way. Now, when we view the words the truth through a history lens, through looking backwards and seeing, well, we know what the truth is. We can see it because Jesus died and Jesus was buried and Jesus rose again. We understand that. His disciples hadn't had that experience yet. Jesus' disciples would have heard this very differently. For them, the truth that Jesus is referring to is the truth of their rabbi, the truth of Jesus, the things that they have heard taught to them, the things that they have heard said, the things that they have seen. Jesus is saying, there is truth in what I have taught you. And it's not just something that you've heard. It's not just something that you've seen. It is what will guide you in the hard days ahead. As one religious scholar points out, to recognize Jesus as the truth is to affirm that as the Word made flesh, Jesus makes the truth of God available to the world. It is to acknowledge that one's relationship with Jesus is relationship with the liberating truth of who God is. That Jesus' life and ministry are the ultimate witness to God's truth. Jesus is the way, the promise of the possible unity with God because in Him one meets the truth of who God really is. In other words, as Jesus teaches them how to live, how to treat others, how to seek the kingdom of God, He is giving them and us a way to understand what it truly means to be a community founded on Him. Through Jesus, we are able to see God as we've never seen God before. We are able to experience God on a whole other level that was never possible to us. God is no longer removed in a temple behind a heavy curtain where no one except for a select few can go. God is now with us. We have now seen God. We can now attain God on a level that has never been uh, before revealed. And as Jesus answers Philip's question in the second half of our passage, he says, to see me, to see what I have done, to hear what I have taught you, is to see the Father. It is to see God. For Jesus, this means that to truly find the truth of who God is, you have to love your neighbor. You have to not put yourself first. You have to seek where God is at work in the world and find a way to be a part of it. To get into it. To find where God's presence is most needed and to take it there. It's to be like Christ. And in finding this truth and finding this understanding of who God is, we find life. And Jesus says, I am the life. Life for Jesus here can be understood in two parts. One, the way that we see it coming out of Easter, eternal life. To believe in Jesus and to, to understand who Jesus is, we gain a life that, that never ends, a life that lasts. But for Jesus' disciples in that moment, it would have been to understand the present life. The life that they are living. The life that, that they wake up to every single day. In the present tense, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is all around us and that God is always at work in it. Jesus teaches his disciples and us that the kingdom of God does not begin one day when we die and go off to heaven, but it is here. It is now. It has been with us since day one. We are members of the kingdom of God as we follow after Jesus now. And we are called to show people where that kingdom is and what that kingdom looks like. 
To understand Jesus as life is to live into the kingdom that he has promised us, that he has shown us. It is to share that life right now with everyone around us, not just waiting for something in the future. It is to not claim that we are not of this world, but to live into the reality that we are a part of the world. That it is all around us. That we get up every day and we go to our schools and we go to our workplaces and we go and spend time with our family and our friends. And when we do that, we catch glimpses of the kingdom of God every time we seek to be the presence of Christ in those spaces. It's to go and be the light in places where it is seeking to be extinguished. But now we come to the part of our I am statement where Jesus really brings all this to a head. He really hones in on what he is trying to say. And it's the part that probably is quoted the most of any part of John chapter 14. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. In the same way that the understanding of the words the way are best understood not like a GPS but rather like a defining characteristic of being a follower of Christ, so too are these words of Jesus more definition than a statement of exclusion. As one scholar says, Jesus' claim that no one comes to the Father except through me is the joyous affirmation of a religious community that does indeed believe that God is available to them decisively in the incarnation and God made flesh and God with us seen through Jesus. As Jesus sits at this Last Supper, as he sits at this table, as he looks into the faces of his friends, those who have been closest to him, as he prepares to say goodbye, he is preparing them for what it means to be a community following after him when he is not there. He is saying that God as Father is available to them in ways that they have never experienced. He is calling them to a new community. One that the world has never seen and one the likes of which the world will never experience again. One where the presence of God understood through Christ is lived out through them. As Jesus' disciples seek to find a new home in him, find a new community, he is stressing that what they will build will be grounded in his incarnation and that God is in them and amongst them whenever they gather together, not in other things. This will shape their new experiences. This will shape who they are as the community of God in the world, no matter what is to come, no matter what will threaten to shake the foundations of what they will build. Now it's important to note, since we're here in this passage, that these are not meant by Jesus to be clobber words. They do not exist to be used to push people away from the table of conversation. They do not exist to, to push people away from understanding and seeing the kingdom of God. As, a, as another scholar points out, to use these verses in a battle over the relative merits of the world's religions is to distort their theological heart. The fourth gospel and its writer is not concerned with the fate, for example, of Muslims, Hindus, or Buddhists, nor the superiority or inferiority of Judaism and Christianity as they are configured in the modern world of today. These words are the confessional celebration of a particular faith community, convinced of the truth and life it has received in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The fourth evangelist's primary concern was the clarification and celebration of what it means to believe in Jesus. Theological vision articulated here expresses the distinctiveness of Christian identity. 
And it is as people shaped by this distinctiveness that Christians can now take their place in conversations about world religions. At the table, as we try to figure out how do we exist in the world, Jesus is telling them this is what makes you unique. This is your experience of God, that you can sit down at that table and have conversation. He is naming and shaping a new community that will be formed in John 14. These are not statements for Jesus' disciples of exclusivity, but rather distinctions of what it means to be the Christian community, what the Christian community is. He is defining for them what it means to know God through Him, through the incarnation, present, incarnational presence of God in the world. As He prepares them for the days ahead, He is letting them know that the promised land of a community striving after Him can exist no matter what it will face. He is calling them to remember what he has taught and as his followers to be representatives of those things wherever they go and in whatever they say and in whatever they do and however they do it. Love your neighbor. Don't strive to put yourself first. Seek to give light and dark places in the world. Go and let people know there is hope. That maybe they can't see the promised land, but you have been to the mountaintop. You have looked down and you have seen that something more is there. Show them the kingdom of God that is always at work around them, in and through them. And do it as the community of Christ. Because this is our call. Rocketing from that table in that upper room on that night thousands of years ago to this place, to this moment, to the chair in which you sit. It is to be a community grounded in what Christ has taught us, in the way Jesus lived, and in what Jesus did. It is to remember that though Jesus died and Jesus was buried and Jesus rose again and Jesus ascended to heaven is not physically sitting in a chair right here with us like he is with his disciples in John 14, that the community of Christ goes on. It marches forward. It continues to share the presence of Christ in the world. It continues to, like Jesus, give joy in places where it is running out. It is to give restoration to people who have been told they have no community, they have no place. It is to help, help take care of the sick, to help them find healing. It is to give encouragement to people who have found sadness in the loss of a loved one or depression in the face of the stress of what it just means to be alive in the world today. It is to help people who look at the world and say there is no hope. We might as well give up. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Why should we even do anything other than sit on our couch and wait for Jesus to get here? It is to say no. Our God is a God of action who believes that the promised land is still attainable if we continue to move towards it as a community grounded in a person, in a teacher who loved deeply, who loved more than anyone else, who said even in the midst of thousands of years of tradition there can be more and God's voice can be revealed to you in new and powerful ways. It is to follow a teacher who says that the community that will be grounded in me will change the world. We sit here in, in Clayton Fitness thousands of years after the death of Christ because people caught that vision. 
Because people lived that out. Because no matter what happened to them, no matter persecution, no matter being in charge as they were in the Roman Empire at one point, no matter what happens to the community of Christ, we are grounded in Jesus. When we live out what he tells his disciples here, to, to follow him as a way of life, to, to find truth, and to find life that is never-ending, life that flows over, and to give that life to people. If we do that, there is nothing that we will face that we as a community can't overcome. To see how this unified community impacts the world, I bring you back to our story of the moving boy. After his 8th grade move, the boy had a lot of ways his life could go. His 8th grade move, however, would add a new dimension to his journey of moving, the community of Christ. The boy didn't grow up in church. He had never been in church much before 8th grade. But in 8th grade, he would connect with the church community for the first time ever. Though it would not lessen the impact of the moves that would come between 9th and 10th grade, and then again between 10th and 11th grade, to different high schools, to different churches, to different places, the community of the church would become a constant outside of his own family. Something that he needed. Something that in all of those moves he had never had before. The church would be a place that he would find familiarity in the midst of unknown schools and people. With each move that would come in the years following 8th grade, it would be the churches that he would connect with. Different ones in each location that would keep him grounded and aid him in starting over in each new location. A community grounded in Christ would give him a path forward. A way to find a family and a community and consistency and stability in ways he had never experienced before. The last part of the parable of the moving boy to note is what happened to the boy with the nomadic childhood. He loved the church community so much that he went to college and majored in religion and philosophy, followed by a graduate degree in divinity. He, be he would begin to work in vocational ministry two weeks after graduating from high school, and after a long and winding and tough journey grounded in the community of Christ, would end up preaching in Clayton, North Carolina in April of 2018. Because this parable of the moving boy is my own story. It's one where when I came into the church and the community of Christ, I found a place that existed no matter where I went. No matter where I ended up, I found people who loved me, who cared for me. Did they all agree theologically? If you put them all in a room together, would they come to fist fighting? Maybe. I don't know. But in each place, they loved me deeply. They cared for me. They gave me stability. They said, you are more than just the moving boy. You are someone who has purpose and has future. And they lived out this community that Christ has called them to. They showed me what it meant to follow the way of Jesus. They showed me what it meant to believe in the truth of who Jesus was. They showed me what it meant to have life even when I didn't see the purpose of moving forward. Because I was tired of starting over every few months. I was tired of getting to summer break and wondering, are we going to move somewhere else today? That community that brings me here today because I only know Andy. Because of one of those moves where we ended up in high school together. The community of Christ that grounds us and brings us together. For us, for Dr. King, for Jesus' disciples, Jesus' words in John 14 are a call to recognize who we are and what we have. To see the community that surrounds us in this place and in the world around us and to not take it for granted. 
To know that there is hope. There is a vision of a promised land. And even if we can't see it, it is there. And Jesus says to us, follow me. Follow the way of what I have taught you. Love as I have loved. Care for people as I have cared for people. And in doing that, you will reach the promised land. And physically, I won't get there with you, but I will be with you every single step of the way. We are being called to live into what the community gives us and the ways it allows us to see God in new and powerful ways. As Jesus sits at this table and says goodbye to his closest friends, to the people who have walked with him for years, to the people who he's had to to smack upside the head sometimes when they haven't gotten it, and to the people he's cried with and loved when they figure it out. Jesus says goodbye to them, but in doing so says that no matter what will come, no matter even if you face death and persecution, no matter if you face that feels like that no matter if you face a future that feels like there is no hope, there is still promise. And why? Because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the understanding of the Father that I have given you except through what I have taught you. When you live this out, you live out a new understanding, a new expression of who God is and how God works in the world. So follow my example. Be a community that never is shaken no matter what comes. Be a community that joins together that even when we individually feel like we can't go on, we find hope and strength and perseverance in what brings us together, in the community that we have. And so as we conclude today, how are we, as a community at Mosaic, existing as an expression of community founded on the way of Jesus? How are we drawing strength from the life and truth that Jesus brings to us? And so as the worship team comes up this morning...